It's Monday, April 20th, 2020. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode number three of the 5049 Records CoronaCast. How you guys doing? Thanks for joining us for another remote uh, FaceTime conversation from the American epicenter of this global pandemic. I'm coming to you from New York City, and today I am talking to sound engineer, producer, studio Jedi, Mark Urselli. Mark uh, is in London sitting this thing out, so this was a transcontinental sit-down. This conversation just took place uh, on Saturday. We are answering questions submitted by you, the listeners, as that is the format for the CoronaCast. Uh, I want to let you guys know up top that next week we're going to have another studio magician on the show, Randall Dunn. You guys know Randall Dunn. He was on the show, I think, uh, two or three years ago. He, like Mark, is an absolute, absolute master of the studio. And guys, you got to send in questions. We got some good questions today. It seemed like all the questions uh, for the talk today uh, were pretty much entirely uh, in search of Mark's perspective on how to be better at home recording. Uh, so that's that's what today's show is really about. Uh, but before we get into that, I just want to tell you, next week, Randall Dunn. If you want to ask Randall questions, you guys know Randall from producing records by Sun, by Earth, Dylan Carlson, the guy that basically invented doom music, Wolves in the Throne Room, Boris, uh, Marissa Nadler, Chelsea Wolf. I mean, the list is long and illustrious. He worked quite closely on the soundtrack for Mandy with Johan Johansson. Uh, it was the last project that Johan actually did before he sadly passed away. So Randall's definitely got a lot of interesting stories and a very unique perspective. And I am really making the case to uh, call in, or rather write in, to 5049records at gmail.com and send questions. The week after that, uh, it's going to be me. Me, solo podcasting. So any questions you have for me, send them to 5049records at gmail.com. That'll be uh, my 40th birthday broadcast. And yeah, anything you guys want to talk about, send me those questions. All right, Mark Urselli. Uh, Mark was on the show back in, I think, 2013. As I mentioned, the bulk of the questions that we address, or rather Mark more than me, today are, are specifically about home recording, but we also talk a bit about his uh, years and years of work with people like John Zorn and Laurie Anderson, Lou Reed, and uh, uh, we talk about Hal Wilner, the great Hal Wilner who sadly passed away just like uh, less than two weeks ago. Mark worked with Hal for, for many years, and he offers some thoughts on the work and the legacy that Hal has left behind, which is vast to say the least. Mark is a master. I've been very fortunate to work with him in the studio on... I don't know, four or five records, something like that. Uh, not as much as I'd like. He is transcontinental now, going between Europe and the United States quite frequently. Obviously not right now. Uh, we're in this goddamn fucking lockdown, but this is a good talk. Uh, you know, I'm not into the, like, FaceTime uh, way of doing this, but I think we've got the sound at a place where it's not too distracting. If you want to find out more about Mark Urselli, and uh, I strongly suggest you do because he's worked on some pretty incredible records, you're going to want to go to www.markurselli.com. The last thing I'll say before we get into it is all the music that you, you hear on today's show 
is from a record that came out late last year, collaborative record between Mark, the filmmaker Jim Jarmusch, guitar player Lee Ronaldo, who you know from Sonic Youth, and Balish Pandy, Hungarian drummer who plays with everybody. It's a record that Mark produced. Mark's playing bass on it, kind of uh, improvised, ambient, uh, beautiful, beautifully made record. So check that out. That's on Trost Records, and here it is. Here's me and Mark Urselli answering your questions just two days ago. Six more months of this shit. Uh, well, I mean, I think that. Let me turn the game down a little bit. I think that um, it's it's gonna be at least a year until we're completely out of out of it, out of the woods, mm-hmm. in the sense that until there is a uh, a vaccine, you're all you're gonna do is you're gonna flare half, you know, flare up, flare up again. So. If you don't have a vaccine, the minute that they say, okay, you can all go out again and start your lives again, you're going to have infections again, and you're going to go back to square one. So I think until there's a vaccine, you're not going to be able to completely go well, back they said, to Yeah, they said the vaccine is like at minimum 18 months away. <laughs> That's what I mean. That's what I mean, which but is why I think— I've seen proposed guidelines for, for slowly opening up the quarantine, for New York anyway, um, specifically to restaurants— and, yeah. you know, like what they are proposing straight away for when they start to, to let people out is uh, restaurants can only operate at 50 percent of their max occupancy. One, customers and staff have to wear masks. The second uh, and then you have to take people's temperatures as they come in the door, turn away people who exhibit symptoms of corona. I mean, it's just like even if you start like that, like what's the point? You're not going to make any money. And in terms of experiencing hospitality, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like experiencing like the act of going out with people, experiencing a chef's food, it, you know, it's like that's not what that's about. And I can only imagine like, like how are you going to do that with concerts? How are you going to do that with a recording studio where you spend 12 hours locked in a small room with four people? Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I don't know how, how it's going to all go down. I think... I think what they really what they should do is start testing everyone and give some kind of bracelet or something uh to the people that are immune or have had it or have the antibodies for it mm-hmm. and let those roam around freely and you know somehow protecting the ones that haven't had it yet but i don't know if that's the answer i mean we're definitely going into direction of more control and the governments are just loving that opportunity you know yeah it's going to be a scary time of of phone trackings and having to give information i just talked to my parents a minute ago where in italy are they, are they in switzerland or italy no my parents are in italy uh-huh. where, which as you know is the most 
one of the worst was. off countries. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> was, still is. Now, Nothing right. has really changed. Where, they're not, where are uh, they? In the south? They're in the south, and they're in a small town, so they're, it's not like they're in the in the what they call the red zone, which is Milan. Right. Uh, but they said they were complaining to me that the city hall requires them to send an email the day before they want to uh, leave the house to go farm their own land, if if that is a thing. Because you know, obviously in the south, there's a lot of farmers. My parents mm-hmm. have some olive trees. And the olive trees need some maintenance, mm-hmm. and so apparently, you know, now you have to send an email email to let them know that you're going to farm your own land, and just, otherwise, just to go outside. You, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you can't even go outside unless you're going for shopping, in which case you have to print out a form, right? And you and fill out this form so that you, if you get stopped by the police, and I have friends in France, friends in France that told me that their daughter was stopped three times uh, on the way. Uh, to grocery shop or something, yeah, because she didn't have the right paper, things like that. So it's it's we're going towards a world of total. I mean, that's control. honestly that's the most depressing thing about this. Being inside Absolutely. is fine, whatever. You know, I'm reading books, I'm watching movies, I'm playing the horn, whatever. That's fine. Um, but anytime it sinks into my head, like, oh god, like this is just you know, it'll never. Like you'll never go back to if you before. think about like we're going to talk about music we're going to talk about recording music but yeah. if you think about like the policies that came in after 911 uh under bush that were you know like meant to sort of get a control on possible terrorists it's like those things haven't gone away they've expanded you know the yeah. the NSA and the wiretapping it's like so they're not going to dial it back right anyway it's yeah it's crazy it's absolutely nuts. So you've been able, you've been mixing, doing mixing projects from uh, from home. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of mixing. Uh, that's been, you know, that's always been the case. Honestly, I've never stopped mixing. Yeah. Um, obviously, the the amount of projects have has drastically diminished because people are making records because they can't go to studios, uh, and people have no money because they're not playing gigs. Mm-hmm. So. There's definitely be a, been a drastic reduction, but mm-hmm. I was set up before this to mix from home, yeah. Uh, and and so now that I'm in my London apartment, I've just had to buy a f- couple of extra pieces of gear so that I can do the same here. But I already had speakers and stuff, and so you know I'm set up. And you don't you don't mix on headphones, do you? No, I have speakers, yeah, and it's the same speakers, the same brand of speakers that I have in the recording studio in New York. What is it? Uh, um, Adam like Audio. Adam. No, yeah. Adam Audio. Yeah. yeah, I'm an Adam Audio endorser, and I have uh, headphones. I, uh, these Olo headphones, Olo Audio, uh, great Slovenian uh, headphone manufacturer, and then I have in ears from yeah. um, Stelsonic. and so you know I have three references. Uh, and they're all, you know, really great references mm-hmm. to go between when I mix. Yeah, yeah. And you know what the baseline for these things is. You know what you're hearing. Abs- absolutely, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I went to the internet. I sourced some questions from people. Uh, I'm a little disappointed that the questions weren't geekier. I kind of was, like, hoping <laughs> people would send in, like, gear and, and technique-specific questions. It seems like the questions we got all kind of float around the same idea, which is... Um, home recording and you know the pluses and minuses of of 
the fact that that's where people make records now. Um, and you, as a recording engineer, in, from the classical tradition of, you know, you did an internship for a thousand hours and you, you know, worked your way up. Much th- more than a thousand hours. I was going to say a thousand, <laughs> I was going to say a thousand years, but then, uh, but you, it but, was two, it was two years. Yeah. I you think. put, you put in the hours in the traditional way of yeah. learning the studio from the coffee maker up to the console. And you, uh, along with other engineers I know, have been pretty vocal uh, in in your distaste for a lot of what goes along with home recording. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because a lot of it is just done poorly, not because it's home recording. I don't have an issue with home recording. Right. Right. So I'll start kind of with a question of my own. But like, where do you, for you, what, what, where would you separate? Like you just said, it's not a bad uh, recording because it's home recorded it's recorded badly where do you hear the difference in something it doesn't matter how it was recorded because it has such a vibe you know uh and something that's just like unusable the difference between the two yeah um you know i've it's funny because i don't ask me to mention names but i'm mm-hmm. mixing a project that's that's extremely poorly recorded Mm -hmm. and it came from a recording studio Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's not even the question is not even whether it's been recorded at home or whether it's been recorded in the studio the question is how was it recorded by whom Mm -hmm. you know because if you are not a recording engineer you're not going to be doing a good job even if you're in a great recording studio Mm -hmm. Uh, and so i think the real issue is who's doing the recording, not where they're being done. Obviously, where has a big influence, especially on certain instruments like drums, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. But you know, you can certainly record a vocal at home and have do a great job. You don't need to go to a thousand dollar a day studio for that. Uh, of course, you know, if there's going to be a siren passing, you're probably going to have a siren on your recording, but you can just redo the take. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know how to set a level or, or how to choose a mic versus a preamp, et cetera, et cetera, then that's a bigger problem. So if you are presented with the prospect of mixing a record that you're going to mix it in your studio with your setup, your monitors, you know, you have it, you have that control taken care of. What are some things that you hope are going to be taking like what wh- give me a list of like three things that you hope you aren't going to see in the recording and three things that you hope you will see three things okay uh three things that i hope i won't be seeing is signal that you can't even see until you zoom in okay which which has happens a lot recently mm-hmm. i don't know if it's pe- because people don't know about the existence of gain or because they're afraid to use it or they're afraid to distort uh-huh. it and and that and that's why they're so com- conservative that you can't even see the waveform i swear to you I've done two recordings that I, I had to gain every track up 15 dbs before Jesus i could even Christ. see the see 15 before db. i could even before i even saw the waveform without <laughs> zooming in on it so when that you do that crazy. you increase the noise floor like yeah exactly yeah. which is goes back to my thing, which if you're not an engineer, you don't understand noise floor versus signal to noise ratio, et cetera. Don't be an engineer. Don't try to be. Either learn the or craft or Or at least go to YouTube and it. just look up gain staging. Yeah, whatever. There's a lot of resources. But, yeah. You know. Okay. So number one is weak signal that you have to increase at minimum 15 dB. Yeah. Okay. Uh, number two would be... Um, signal that that 
basically has no cajones. Uh, <laughs> I've heard a lot of recorded stuff that feels like they've put a mattress between themselves and the vocal or uh, between mean, themselves and the, and the microphone. I uh, just like, like stuff that has no definition and mm-hmm. it's complete, complete, completely thin sounding, mm-hmm. which is usually, you know, bad, bad gear. Yeah. Um, more than bad engineering. Mm-hmm. Those are the top two things. I mean, if you get those two right, then we're already in the ballpark. Yeah. And then the third, I think, is about deliverables and how stuff is delivered to me because... Oh, boy. Yeah, I mean... You're talking about file management? I'm talking about file management, file naming, file uh, structures, and then the big one, uh, which the big one is... Logic versus two Pro Tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many times have I had to do that conversation with somebody on the other end that only knows Logic but doesn't even know Logic well enough to export tracks as an audio file, uh, as audio files rather than a Pro Tool session? I mm-hmm. mean, a, a Logic session, sorry. Mm-hmm. So recently I mixed this, uh, again, I don't want to mention names, no. but I mixed this project for uh, an artist. Uh, from far away, won't say where, or we'll give it away. <laughs> and I literally had to have their engineer, oh, who had no clue what he was doing, obviously, send me the same tracks three times because he couldn't figure out how to export an audio file from Logic. And so I was left the first time I got a, also I the first time for for the thirty tracks I got like. 80 tracks because he was sending me all these little snippets of stuff like clips because, clips because yeah. he didn't do he didn't do what in Protoss is called a consolidation I don't know what it, what they call it in logic right making multiple regions to, together into one file right. uh, he didn't don't know how to do that and the second time um, it, the second time I think he only sent me a, a, a logic session but no audio files thinking I'd be able to open that in Pro Tools. The third time he sent me uh, stuff that had no name, so it was all audio one, audio two, audio three. Oh God! Uh, and it literally took three times until yeah. three tri- tries f- until I got what I needed, so that I could start mixing. So I, you know, without without you know talking forever about the subject. Those but deliverables and file management, like if so, so just to make that clear to anyone who's listening, you know, if you are gonna send tracks to be mixed by someone remotely someone who wasn't in the room with you someone who didn't generate the session have it be clean have everything be labeled don't send like if you have an eight track recording you have bass drums guitar etc there should be one track per instrument or 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 input uh Bear that in mind. It is deeply frustrating to have to figure out someone else's workflow, especially if it seems like that workflow uh, was a little bit messy. Yeah. All right. Now I'm going to get into this first question is from uh, a guy named Juan. Okay. Uh, and again, all these questions kind of seem to to hover around this i you know these this this concept of home recording. Uh, I'm curious to ask Mark and you about any insights or opinions on the constant surge of self-produced music, particularly in the jazz, improv, avant-garde world. It seems like a catch-22 situation. 
Lots of these artists don't have serious enough budgets in order to record with someone like Mark. But the reality is that most serious studios should, should also be charging much more than they do. Any insights, hypotheses on how to improve on this? And here's really the question. Do you see the self-produced trend progressing toward productions that have real value? That's, that's kind of a weird question. Uh, and then he continues, as someone who largely self-produces in no small part because of budgetary restraints, I wonder what you'll have to say about this. I've learned a lot by trial and error and worked really hard to make my music sound as good as it can because it would be nice just to be able to hire us. Okay, uh, so the question is, do you see self-produced trend progressing toward productions that have real value? I mean, the concept of value is a little questionable. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what value he's, what he's, what Juan is talking about when he says value. Is it commercial value? Is it uh, value as in quality of recording? Uh, is it value as in quality of music? Because those are all very different things. And if we're talking about uh, quality of music, then uh, that goes to goes back to your musicianship and your practicing and your making sure that what you're putting out there for the world to hear is is good stuff, good stuff you can be proud of now, but also proud of down the line, mm-hmm. not stuff that you've just vomited out because you now have the tools to record from home and therefore you should put stuff out. I think the biggest, I, it's multifaceted because on from the one side, I think it's great that people have access to gear uh, because it helps creativity and it allows people to be creative. And in a way, it's like the punk 1977 revolution where, you know, finally... Uh, everyone could make music and that's great because I'm an advocate for expression for artistic expression but on the other side there's the argument that you shouldn't put stuff out just because you can or you shouldn't record stuff just because now you have a microphone if you want to record everything that's great it's actually probably a very good exercise for you to hear back what you play but it doesn't mean you have to put it out necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree 100%. Um, and then, you know, if, if I were to look at that question, asking about value, I'm going to assume he's talking about artistic uh, substance and, and, you know, really what the, the, the creative content is. And I, you can really look at it uh, a couple ways. One is oftentimes if you're at home recording music, you can get results um, that – would be very difficult to achieve uh, if you're looking at the clock, if there's lots of other people in the room with you, if you're battling some kind of self-awareness about what it is you're doing. Uh, and I think a really good example of that would be like Elliot Smith and the first couple of records that he did, which they have such a vibe. I mean, you know, you could objectively pick apart the sonic quality of the recording and, and be sort of, you know, critical of it. But what you hear from the artist is like so vulnerable, so... Like it is such like a perfect example to me of a home recording and what you can achieve when you're just in your own comfort zone making music. Yeah. Um, but the other side, and this is to me is like a really kind of like jazz based thing, um, or it, the way things happen traditionally in jazz is like it's a real skill to be able to go into a room full of people, know that you have limited time, and just execute at the highest level in one or two takes. Uh, and I think that as a musician is something to strive for, to get yourself to that place where you can, and it's, you know, it's definitely like 
kind of a macho thing, but you know, if I were producing a record, if I was hiring someone to come in and play on my record, I would certainly prefer they can come in and blow my mind, you know, with one or two takes than have to sit there for four or five hours. Right. Well, yeah, it goes back to, you know, practicing and the craft of uh, the craft of musicianship. I mean, I've been watching a lot of documentaries with all this newfound time that we mm -hmm. now have uh, being quarantined during a pandemic, all these documentaries that I put off and never had time to watch, I'm now watching. And as you look at these documentaries of all older, uh, the older greats, like I just watched the one about Sam Cooke, mm -hmm. you just realize, damn, they can sing, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, they're just like four people in front of the mic and they're killing it and you know rarely i watch the one on the beach boys of course great singers too you know it's and then fast forward 50 years later and it you're doing 50 takes of the same vocal mm -hmm. because a you've lost track of what really matters and you're striving for uh, a perfection that is not not really part of a great performance but it's just like some idea that you have perf perfection but even worse you just have singers that can't sing mm -hmm. you know back in the days of sam cook if you couldn't sing you couldn't make it i mean the world and was now, a much sadly, less visual place then it was really about the listening experience and not the yeah. you know the onslaught of of visual aural information that just you know kills you of course but back then if you could sing like sam cook could you had a chance to make a career and you couldn't do that if you were a poor singer now because of technology there's this expectation that you can make it too even if you can't sing i mean i would say going back to Juan's question something that i you know i would take away from this would be you really it's important to take control uh, at least in your sense of knowledge of as much of the process as possible. So orchestration, for instance, that's not just taking out some staff paper and, and figuring it out there. Uh, this thing that Mark's talking about with the old recordings, if you have four musicians in a room, an engineer with one mic, you right away, the engineer is thinking about the frequency range. They're thinking about the relative volume of things and where to place people within the room. The musician should be thinking about the exact same thing. You know, and they should have a sense of what they're putting forward and how it's going to influence the total sound. Yeah, agreed. And and if one, if I don't know if I'm interpreting one's question properly, but if he's talking about the surge of self-produced music, as in, because he says particularly in the jazz improv yeah. avant-garde world, I mean, I've definitely noticed that people have a tendency. And I don't want to be critical, but they have a tendency to just release stuff, yeah. Uh, be because because now there's a medium. Because now you don't have to have a record contract to release stuff. I think people should still be, um, you know, discerning in what they release. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Speak, I'll, yeah, I, know, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so I got another question here from a guy named Chad, and it's pretty similar to stuff we already talked about. Uh, hey, Mark and Jeremiah, thanks for taking the time to answer questions. For those of us working from home, what advice can you offer on making sure that we get the best mix possible to the mastering engineer? And what are the most common mistakes made in this regard? And then the second question is, in general, what are some of the biggest and most common mistakes found in home-recorded and mixed projects? I think we already kind of talked about 
the second part in terms of yeah pretty much those talk- are the th- yeah, yeah i think we did the second part but i'll answer the first the part the first one's a good question yeah i mean yeah. i don't i don't want to be too controversial or too critical and i won't may- be making any friends with this answer but i'll say it anyway the answer is unless you are a mix engineer the best possible way to get a a, the best mix possible to a mastering engineer is to hire a mix engineer. <laughs> that is the answer. So unless you are a mix engineer, you shouldn't be mixing from home. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like it's not going to be as good as if you can hire a mix engineer. And you don't have to hire the most expensive mix engineer, but most likely somebody that is a mix engineer will do a better job than you can ever do if you're not a mix engineer yourself. Mm-hmm. So the co- the most common mistake made in this regard is assuming that you can do as good as somebody that's been doing this for years and years. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna push you a little bit to offer some more practical. Uh, so so he, here here's what I would initially say. I agree with Mark and. If you want someone to play a sax part, hire a sax player. If you want a drummer to play a drum part, hire a drummer. Uh, if The reason you have, uh, let's go back to the, the idea of the mastering engineer. Ultimately, the reason you hire a mastering engineer, yes, they're going to create the file, the DDP, that's going to go to the manufacturer. But more importantly, they are a last step of quality control. They're going to make sure that your record, it's one last set of ears and one last skilled person to make sure your record sounds as good as it can. Uh, So taking that idea to the mix engineer, I would say if you're working from home, put in a thousand hours to get all the creative aspects of your mix put together. The stuff that you're not going to, you can't reasonably expect a mix engineer to pour over. Uh, that's, you know, like weird creative choices or, you know, you recorded at your apartment in New York and there's parts where you can very easily cut out a siren and not leave that up to the mix engineer. I would say do that and let the mix engineer focus on the frequency range, the compression levels, the really practical aspects of the mix. Yes, absolutely. I mean, what you're talking about is basically editing, and I totally agree and underline the fact that you should not expect your mix engineer to do editing of your song unless you've talked about that with him or her. You should do your own editing. You should do your own vocal tuning. God forbid you need vocal tuning. It would be great if you don't need to do it. Uh, (laughs) goes back to my previous answer. But if you do need to do it, do it yourself. Don't assume that the mixing engineer is going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but okay, I, you know, let's answer Chad's question. Assuming, let's, let's answer Chad's question assuming that Chad is a mix engineer okay. and that that's why he's mixing his own music at home. Um, if that is the case, to answer your question on how to deliver to the mastering engineer, I would say, first of all, talk to the mastering engineer if you know who it's going to be uh, and ask him how they want the stuff uh, delivered. And then mm-hmm. if, if you don't know who it is, the number one most important thing is that you leave that poor sucker some headroom. Because if yeah. you try to, if you compress your mix and you limit your mixing, your mix in a way that it's it, it just appears to be this squared off brick of a waveform, 
you're just going to make his life impossible. He's not going to be able to do what he needs to do. So watch your levels. Make sure you leave, leave a lot of headroom, at least six dBs of headroom, mm-hmm. or, uh, to the four or three if you really have to. To the Don't do too much compression of your mix is basically what I'm saying. Or don't do any compression of your mix before you give it to the mastering engineer. Mm-hmm. And then give give it give the files to the mastering engineer at the highest possible sampling uh, uh, rate and bit depth, which means it doesn't mean you have to upsample to 3296 or 32192 if the project was recorded at 2448. But if the project was at 2448, give it to him at 2448. Mm-hmm. Don't give it to him at 1648 or 1644 because it's going to go to CD. Yeah. Well, actually, on that topic, I, I, I'd be curious because I hear, like, I was in a studio recently and I didn't pursue the conversation just because I was focused on other things. But the engineer said something like, yeah, man, I just record everything at 44.1. That's my thing. Oh, please tell me who that was. I'm not going to. <laughs> okay. uh, You'll tell me later. And, and he sort of intimated, like, look, you know, I'm not having that argument right now. And and I was like, all right, all right, cool, 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 cool. What, what what's your response to that? And 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 just to be clear to anyone listening, when you're no fuck that, you guys know what I'm talking about. Go ahead. What what what, what would you say to that, Mark? Bullshit. That's <laughs> what I would say. <laughs> Can we curse on this podcast? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's bullshit. I mean, right? you want to record absolute at bullshit. the highest sampling rate possible. You want to record at the highest bit depth and the highest sampling rate that your system allows mm-hmm. to you to do um and you know i've or i mean okay i'm partially guilty of that myself because at eastside sound where i do most of my recording i could record at 192 but i choose to record at 88 um but and but that's the the reason why i'm limiting myself in that regard is because some of the plugins that i really like to use don't yet work at 192 okay and also because uh, because this what is, system, that? is that a cat? I, that is a siren speaking. Okay, of all right. Home Sorry. recording. <laughs> Plenty of sirens when you're in a pandemic. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's plugins. a London siren. Maybe yeah. that's why you didn't get it. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's some plugins that I own that I like that don't work at 192. So I choose to record at 88, and I'm happy with the sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't feel like I'm, uh, you know, I'm cutting corners there mm-hmm. but i but but i did lately as of maybe a couple of years ago uh i started recording everything at 32 bit i don't even record at 24 anymore mm-hmm. uh so and again it comes back comes it goes back to how much you're going to be recording so if i'm recording tons of inputs i might stay at 24 just because i want to make sure that the computer won't stall uh but if i'm recording a normal amount of inputs which of course depends on your system then i do 3288 or 3296 so even for the home engineer who's you know making their masterpiece during this quarantine recording with you know a bunch of 57s into an mbox or a scarlet red or whatever the fuck still highest bit depth and sampling rate possible Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I mean, look, you're going to you if you're recording with shitty equipment like an old Mbox, I have nothing against a, a 57 by the way. 
but if you're recording it's it's one of the greatest mics but let's not go there if you're recording with a shitty preamp somewhere you you are making some choices that are basically cutting corners Mm -hmm. uh so you should cut the least amount of corners that you can cutting recording at 1644 just because it takes less hard drive space it's the stupidest thing you can do <laughs> buy a hard drive Much buy, cheaper. i agree i agree okay let's take this conversation in another question uh direction so this guy joe writes um hi mark i'm wondering if you could talk about your work with john zorn specifically the infamous file card recordings which seem to have their own mythology of long hours and insane insane studio techniques thanks looking forward to the pod um i'll just say before going into joe's question at this point you've probably done over 100 recordings with john right yes uh last time i counted was 104 and last time i counted was over a year ago which that, is the last time I just, updated the, my discography. Yeah, Zorn's projects, not to mention all the stuff on Sadik, which is very much has his sort of like imprint on it. Uh, Correct. That's a lot of hours to be in the studio with one person. And specifically, Joe was asking about file card compositions, which uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with those, it's, it's I, don't, I don't even know how to describe it. Listen to Spillane, listen to Godard, and then some of the newer stuff that Mark's been involved with. Listen to Femina, listen to... Um, Liber Novus. Liber Novus, yeah. These are recordings that are very theatrical. Mount Analog. Yeah, very cinematic. The pieces are long, and they jump from like really uh, distinct stylish, stylistic um, scenarios very quickly. Uh so yeah, yeah, how we just you... we just did a we just did a new one. I don't know if it's out yet, but we did a new one with Simon Haynes and Chess Smith. I heard not it not too long not too long ago. So I don't know if that's out. It's not out, but uh, jo- actually, John sent it yeah. to me. I listened to it. It's pretty insane. Yeah, it's very insane. Uh, the file card pieces are amazing, and as far as as I know, completely unique to John to mm-hmm. Zorn's composing style. Uh, it's one of his composing styles, um, and it basically. Uh, he composes these little, uh, I don't know what to call them, vignettes, these little like auditory scenes, almost. scenes, ideas uh, on what, what are these file cards, which, you know, if for those who, I'm sure everyone knows what file cards index are. Cards, but yeah. It, yeah, index cards. They're not really used outside of the U.S., so it's, I had to explain this. Ah. But if you have any listeners from outside of the U.S., it's these little cards, like the size of a postcard or smaller, that often people use to study. They'll write a question uh, that they're studying and the answer on the back so that they can you know, then shuffle these cards if they're preparing for an exam, read the question, and then see if they, get the, if they remember the answer. Mm-hmm. Now, John writes on these cards only on one side and then shuffles, not randomly like a student would do, he shuffles so he can, he can uh, see what goes best from this scene to the next scene. And he does so for the amount of cards that there are, which on the last piece we recorded was, I think, over 60. Wow. And oftentimes in the studio, he reshuffles them because he, you know, he finds that one goes better into the other. And so he makes changes as he's recording them. And, you know, he comes in with this, these file cards and he picks the first card and explains it to the musicians and the musicians do it. Uh, in the last recording we did, it was Simon Haynes and Chess Smith and Zorn himself playing all of the instruments. And so 
you know, in he would say, okay, in this one, there's sometimes it's written music where he'll just show them the card and they learn the part. Other times it's an idea or a feeling or a sound. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, they are uh, incredible sessions to be a part of because in a way, I mean, I've never seen anyone compose like that. Like I said, John is unique in that. And the creative uh, spirits are, you know, flowing Mm-hmm. And 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 very intense, and in particular for me as a recording engineer, it's one of the hardest sessions I've mm-hmm. ever done, because when John, for example, records a jazz quartet, those for me are the easiest sessions. Sure. Because I I get my I place my mics, I get my levels, I press record, they'll do X num- number of takes. I'm just sitting back and enjoying the music and making sure that the levels are good to tape, but in these file card pieces, John is recording, say, card number one, and then he's recording card number two. And at the, I'm still mixing card number one because he wants to hear a proper mix of scene one before he goes to scene two so that he can play into scene two and know what it feels like. And so basically I'm recording, I'm editing, and I'm mixing at the same time. In these file card pieces, yeah. and, he, and and on top of that, there's the fact that Zorn doesn't ever stop for food or for breaks, and so the musicians actually have it, quote unquote, easier than me. I don't want to say easier than me because obviously they have to learn incredibly hard parts, but easier than me in terms of breaks because they get to, when when Zorn is doing something like editing with me, they get to take a five minute break, a ten right. minute break. I'm on all the time. So I'm on from when we get leave at the studio, enter the studio until we leave, which can often be 10 hours, 12 hours, 14 hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're very intense. Uh, there's no stopping. We just keep editing, keep adding, keep recording, keep mixing. And we basically finish by the end of, usually these are done in two or three days. The last one we did was three days long. By the end of the third day, we basically have a, mic, a, a, a piece that's 90% mixed and mm-hmm. edited. Uh, the 10% is basically we get together one a fourth day to do to to just kind of tweak review. it and fine tune. Yeah, and, tweak yeah. it and review it. But it's yeah. basically there. It's basically there, and so it's it's a super interesting process and for the engineer it's super hard. Well, I mean, something I would imagine would be challenging about it is. Um, you know, when you're, like you said, you know, you record a jazz quartet, you throw up the mics, the instrumentation stays the same. Uh, not only is minute to minute within these filed card compositions uh, the material changing, but it's different instrumentation. It's completely oh, different, like sonic environments and ideas. And I think uh, for someone like John, you want to present as little creative blocks as possible. He like relies entirely on momentum. Yeah, and the momentum with Zorn is fast-paced. Yeah. There is no such thing as slow momentum. Everything moves very fast. His creativity moves very fast, and you just have to move along. Otherwise, he feels like, you know, he feels like there's obstruction, and you don't want that. And on the last session that I keep going back to because it's freshest in my memory, we ended up with over 100 tracks um, of in Pro Tools, and we... Um, we we had I, I don't even I didn't even count the number of sounds, but I can tell you that we had drums, uh, bass, guitar, piano, uh, organ, uh, Rhodes, uh, 
uh-huh. uh, and then we had a whole s- s- vibraphone, lots of vibraphone, and we had a whole slew of percussions, uh, meaning Chess brought his all his uh, Haitian drums, uh, Simon brought an extra cello, mm-hmm. and those are only the normal instruments. Then right. on top of the normal instruments, there's the sounds that we make because cinematic is really the best way to describe these file card pieces. It's like, look, it, if you listen to them, especially in a dark room with headphones, it's like listening to a movie mm-hmm. and let let the sound of, of, of it invoke scenes for you. And it's, it's a trip. It's a total trip. Um, I highly recommend doing that, like that, listening, you know, dark with headphones. It's it's a total trip. It's, I mean, those those amazing. recordings are far and away my favorite of all of Zorn's output. Uh, yeah, for me personally, um, they are. They're like... they're they're super creative and super original. But I, I wanted to say a lot of the sounds that you hear on there are sounds that for the scenes that we've created from scratch, and they go from the most normal thing, like let's uh, grab a bucket of water and and splash the water around so we can make water sounds to the most out there things like i don't know grab uh grab a piece of metal to to brush against another sound until you have the right texture i mean you're just you know? des- you're describing foley basically yeah it's foley it's yeah. it's sound design and it's foley so zorn is doing all of that along with the composition and the, dire- the directing and the playing, because he's playing most of those instruments. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Uh, all right, we've got a question here from our good pal Toby Driver. Oh, Toby. We love Toby. We love Toby. And uh, you've done you've done a number of Toby's <laughs> records now. Yeah, I don't know how many. Certainly not 100, but... Not 100, but you did, uh, I think, a couple K.O. Dot and his solo record, yeah, right? Maybe three or four, yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Toby was on the show a couple of weeks ago. Uh, again, it's uh, I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll go, we'll kind of pick out the main question here. And this is definitely going back to home recorded aesthetics. Uh, the question Toby asks is. With the ability to record and mix at home, questions are always raised about the necessity of studios. I fully understand that doing things in a pro studio with a pro engineer on expensive gear can make things sound better than if they were done at home. Not disputing that. So that's Toby's disclaimer. Uh, but my question is in regard to whether the function of this for underground artists extends any farther than simply artisanship. In my experience, the amount of money spent and the amount of professional quality a uh, record has has absolutely no bearing on whether the record sells well and resonates with audiences. Actually, the artists who record on the cheap and primarily at home tend to do pretty well, even better than artists who go to pro studios. I personally have done records where I've spent thousands and thousands of dollars and others where I've spent basically nothing, and I found that it has no impact whatsoever on the life of a record. So the question is this. What do you see as the function of going with a pro situation besides just personal taste as it specifically relates to the career of an underground artist? I have to mention that I, that not I nor many underground artists want to remain in the underground. We spend money on making a high-quality product because, well, we want a beautiful artifact. But for career's sake, because we perhaps falsely believe that that's what gives us the potential to break out of the underground. But that seems like an illusion. Thanks. That's a hell of a. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, that that goes many layers. Yeah, uh, it's, but, it's 
sorry, go ahead. But the, 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 yeah, I was just, uh, I mean, there's a lot of ways we can answer that, but basically the question is, what do you see is the function? What do you see as the function of going with the pro situation besides just personal taste as it specifically relates to the career of an underground artist? Well, the, what, what I see as the function of going with a pro situation is pro quality. Now, I agree with Toby when he says that, you know, you can make a great record that's going to resonate with your fans, uh, even if it's recorded poorly. There's artists that have done that. Um, The question is, and I pose this question to you as a listener, do you, would you, wouldn't you prefer to hear that poorly recorded record of great music in a great, in a, in a very well recorded way, rather than a poorly recorded way. Yes, I understand and agree with you that with or with Toby that you can still appreciate the music, but I think the listener deserves to hear that music in the best possible way, and it's your responsibility as the artist to deliver that. Mm-hmm. On top of that, I would also add that there is a an argument for legacy to be made an argument for how long you want this stuff to last in your personal history of an artist and how do you want it to stand the test of time because you the choices you make today as an artist are going to have a weight in how you are perceived and remembered tomorrow this you can make great music and record it, record it on a Walkman cassette uh, with, you know, really awful quality and hiss. And then 20, 30 years from now, you might not be very proud of that recording. You might think if only I had recorded it better, uh, you know, it might have had an even bigger impact. You don't know, but regardless of impact, because I don't want to, you know, I don't think we can talk. I don't think you can say much about recording quality versus impact because it does come down to the sound it is important that you record it well for posterity so that you can be proud of it down the line and your fans can go back to it and not cringe when they hear it you know yeah i i I think there's like there's a million ways to talk about this stuff definitely depends on what the music is I think mm-hmm. I think someone who's you know doing a lot of stuff like uh, like in Ableton Live, they're doing like beat programming. Um, yeah, do that shit at home. Do it at home. Yeah, absolutely. That well, has, like, that has that's yeah. the, has your, no, the you know, quality won't get any better if you go to a studio if yeah. you're doing all your electronic music in the box. Obviously, when we talk about home, we're talking about recording uh, acoustic instruments. Or well, yeah, vocals. and I, I think like ultimately, it's you know if you're really talking about artistry. Um, you know, and and you're making a musical statement. You want that statement to be as impactful as possible. And the I've always felt like the mix is um, and the sonic environment in which the music lives is just it's it's equally as important as what the content of the music is. Like it tells just as much of a story. And you know, just on this broad topic of um, all, all these people seem to be asking about about you know home recording. I, I, my response would be just be strategic and and really 
you know, as you're making music and you're kind of getting inspired and ideas are coming to you and how you want to sort of shape the music, you, sh you should kind of get a sense of how you can color that sonically. Um, and or maybe strategy means like, look, I have 500 bucks to make a record. This is the music. What's the most important aspect uh, that should absolutely be done in the studio? You know, maybe it's make yeah. sure you do all the drums and the electric guitar in the studio. Do your vocals, your keyboard overdubs. Uh, you know, if you want to play a woodwind solo, do you know, really kind of like map it out. I don't think that's quite yeah. what Toby's asking. Um, no, but I I agree with you, and I want to underline that what you just said because I was gonna get to that, which uh, which is, you know, you don't have to do everything in the studio, but you also don't have to do everything at home. You can do a hybrid and ensure that that things that would make a where you can hear a bigger difference, like drums, mm -hmm. are done professionally in a studio, and then you can do your guitars at home and your vocals at home and hopefully hire a mix engineer not try to mix it yourself you know those but just allocate your resources so that you can do as good as po good job as possible yeah i'm i'm just looking at this question one more time to see if mm -hmm. if i can offer i i i don't know that i i i'm i personally certainly don't know how to predict uh what music is going to resonate with people or be successful or sell. Um, history sort of proves that. Uh, so I don't, I, I don't know. I think it's it's really just a matter of doing what the music asks you to 100% of the time. And, you know, look at your skill set and look at how to improve it. You know, you, I don't know if that makes any sense, but, um, you know, I, I, I record a lot of stuff at home and I'm fully aware of places that it could be better if it were done in a different facility but i have also figured out ways to make music at home that could only happen at home and i think that's sort of to me that's interesting anyway uh, yeah and you know i don't want to put toby on the spot or call him out but but i remember um, i have a memory of working with toby probably on the first time we worked together um and he asked me to mix a record of his. I forget which one it was. Mm -hmm. And on some songs, he gave me individual vocals uh, dry. And on other songs, he gave me uh, vocals that had reverb built on the mm -hmm. track already. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying to him, hey, I'd like to get all of these dry so I can do my own, you know, uh, my own processing and his answer was well i really spent a lot of time on this reverb reverb and it's important to me that it stays that way so i didn't argue because that's what he wanted right and i i left it at that but then i remember that i brought it up only after the record was done and i you know when i when it was finished and we had a great record i said toby it was great to work with you hope we can do it together and i hope next time you can give me all the tracks dry because I think I can make them sound better than the wet ones you send me of this particular songs. Uh -huh. And he, I remember he said, yes, I, I, I hear it on the tracks. So Toby hears it. It's and to I mean, there you're talking you about know, Toby. No. Well, yes, of course. That, that was my first time working with Toby. And maybe there was an element where Toby was like, I don't trust that Mark will make the right decisions in reverb. I don't trust that Mark will hear what I'm hearing. Cool. I understand that. 
uh, because it was, I should mention, it was an unattended mix. I wasn't with Toby in the studio. I was mixing on my own. Um, but Toby heard the difference between the tracks where he did the reverb and I did the reverb. Mm-hmm. And and be, because on the tracks where he did the reverb, obviously, you know, dynamics that I apply will have a different result, whether mm-hmm. if the single is dry or single is wet. But without getting into technical details, the point is he heard it. So I would say if Toby heard it and it's own it's his own music, other people can hear it too. Right. And so if you've if you've heard it, you as the artist, why wouldn't you wanna record make sure that it's that your your music is delivered in the best possible way mm-hmm. to for for you and for the fans for the mm-hmm. listeners mm-hmm. So I, that's that's my argument well you know just thematically in this conversation whether it's the scenario you just described being in the studio with zorn for those marathon sessions that last you know three 14 hour days in a row uh you know, trust, you know, really, really like developing trust with, with the engineer um, and developing like a sense of understanding of one another. Like, you know, why work with a mix engineer? Someone like Mark, someone like uh, Randall Dunn, someone like Jamie Saft, like all these really creative people that are, you know, doing cool records. Uh, they, they have the skills to help you realize your vision. Just communicate and trust and allow things to develop. I think you can end up with really good results. Yeah, absolutely. It's Uh, all about communication. Yep. So here I got a question from Jim. Uh, Hi, Mark. A couple of questions. First question is, if you were advising someone looking to put together a respectable home studio, where would you suggest they direct most of their resources? Mics, preamps, acoustic treatment of of the room? And then his second question, uh, if you were sent to a desert island and can only take three pieces of gear from Eastside Sound and start anew, what would they be? Okay, first question depends on what what it is that you are recording at home um, because there's no blanket statement. If you're a singer, obviously, you want to have a good vocal mic and a good preamp. But if you are uh, a violin player, you're going to pick a different uh mic for example then you're not going to pick a vocal mic um so and then acoustic treatment is something that's important uh depending on where you live if you live in the middle of the country side and there's no noise and you're just doing recording uh it's less important than if you live in a an apartment in new york city where there's a siren every 30 seconds uh that said I, as a mixing engineer who gets a lot of tracks recorded by people at home, I can hear your room, people. Because if you're recording in this little closet, uh, like the one Jeremiah is calling me from, you know, I'm going to hear those walls that are three, two feet or three feet behind Jeremiah's mm-hmm. back, you know. So pick a good sounding room, pick a dead room or pick a, a, a big room. Bigger is better. You know, hmm. not because of the reverberation, but because of the lack of it. Um, How do you mean that? Because I mean, because I don't want to. I want to hear the direct signal. I don't want to hear the reflection reflections off of that signal off of the walls. Right. When I say bigger is better, I'm not saying you should go into a church so I can hear the church reverb. 
I'm saying that rather than recording in your bathroom where mm-hmm. I'm going to hear the sound splashing off of those marble or ceramic tiles mm-hmm. coming back into your microphone, go record in the living room where there's mm-hmm. bookshelves that are, you know, absorbing sound. That's what I mean by bigger. Right. Um and it's, and so to go back to the initial question, if you're a singer, invest on a good mic and a good good preamp. If you can invest on a good preamp, I assure you it's going to sound better than if you're going directly into your sound card. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are a drummer, it gets a lot more complicated. If you're yeah. a drummer, I think you should go to a studio unless you want to spend a lot of money on preamps and microphones. Mm-hmm. If you're a violin player, so I mean, I don't know what Jim uh, plays. Uh, it'd be great. I could give a more appropriate answer if I knew what what kind of musician he is. Mm-hmm. But I, I'd say pick your gear based on your needs. And and uh, monitors. I mean, that's an important part of that equation too. Yes and no. If you're recording, if you're person recording yourself at home, monitors are not important because you're not going to be listening to the monitors while you record yourself. That's true. That would mean feedback. Uh, so, you know, monitors are only important to listen back. But if you're re- recording, then you can use your headphones to record. You yeah. probably should should use your headphones to record. All right. And then the second question is uh, three pieces of gear. If you had to go... Th- live on a desert island with oh um well assuming that the desert island is 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 really desert and i'm not going to be doing any recording on it because <laughs> there's there's nobody on a deserted island that, well i i I, th- I think the assumption is that you're going to be doing some recording <laughs> no i mean i well what i was getting at is if i'm if on this desert island i'm just mixing i'm not going to bring microphones but if on the desert island i also want to record but then, if it's a desert island, who am I going to record? So I'm going to. Well, let's just, <laughs> let's assume that on desert island there are several musicians who are looking to make records. Wow, that's the most undeserted desert island. It'd be a very unusual place, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, obviously, I need a computer because uh, that's nowadays the AWs. That's nowadays the medium we record okay, on. So you're taking the computer. So I'm taking the computer. Um, taking a Macintosh. Absolutely. Uh-huh. We don't mess around with PCs. No they PCs. should stay on desert nope. islands forever. Uh, hopefully islands that will never be found again. Mm-hmm. Um, I will taste speakers. I love my Adam speakers. So Adam depending, Audio. Adam Audio speakers, depending on you know how much room I got in this desert island, I would either bring the big ones from Eastside Sound or I'd <laughs> bring the smaller ones. The big ones being the S5H, the small ones being the A7X. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so those are the two most important things. And then the third thing, I'd have to decide between a keyboard and a microphone. Uh, because with a keyboard, I can be creative and make music. But if right. you're saying on this desert island, I need to record micro- uh, people, then I'd bring a microphone. So and now, what? Yeah, no, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say, because Jim has limited me to three items, I cannot bring a preamp, which is, is kind of a conundrum because what good is a mic without a preamp? So I'm going to get out of that corner that Jim pushed me in by saying, I will bring this mic that I'm speaking into now 
which is a Lewitt uh, DGT650. Um, Lewitt? And, uh, yeah, it's spelled L-E-W-I-T-T. Okay. Um, it's an Austrian company. Uh, and the reason I like this microphone is because it's, and I did a lot of research on this, it's the best sounding uh, USB microphone that doesn't require a preamp. Oh. And it can be used on your uh, computer or on your iPhone or on your uh, iPad. So assuming there is an iPad or an iPhone on the desert island, I can actually go and record the birds of that desert island without having to be tied to a computer or hmm. to a power supply. Uh, it's a, it's also a stereo microphone, which allows me to record in mono or in stereo. Um, these are I'm looking at these right now. They're not expensive. They're not, I think they're not it's cheap, around six hundred dollars. Yeah, but something you can, like I that. Mean, that's you know, that's doable. Yeah, it's doable. Yeah, but you know the the amazing thing about this microphone. I mean, this I can't stop saying good things about this mic. And again, I I'm choosing this mic because I'm because limited to three items, yeah, and I can't bring a preamp. preamp. Yeah, it doesn't require a preamp. It's a USB microphone, uh, and it has an integrated audio interface. So I can actually, with this microphone, also record a guitar or a keyboard, should there be one on that desert island. Um, it's a professional microphone that records at 24-bit 96k it's as far as i know when i was researching this it was the only microphone that was that you could do 2496 um so it has an adda converter inside has great dynamic yes. range 110 into the geek shit. i like it yeah yeah, yeah great yeah. dynamic range uh it it's super quiet um it even has a MIDI interface built in, uh, so you can record MIDI. Uh, and like I said before, which is also very important, it's a stereo microphone. So you can use it as a mono microphone uh, or you can use it as a stereo microphone. And you can do stereo, you can do um, uh, figure eight, uh, you can do omni, or you can use it in this hybrid mode of microphone plus line input. So if you are a singer-songwriter with a guitar and voice, you can record your guitar with a jack and you can record your voice at the same time with yeah. one microphone. Yeah. So, so yeah, I love there this. There she is, yeah. If you, uh, we're, we're going to wrap up with one more question after this, but mm -hmm. if preamps are available all throughout the desert island of every stripe, what, <laughs> what, what one mic would you take with you? Uh, if preamps were available or if I could take a fourth item... Uh, then hmm, that's that's a very hard question. Like I if you had so to marry many... one microphone, spend the rest of your life with just one one microphone. Ah uh, man, uh, too many. You show I, up in every a... session with you say, "Hey, I'm Mark. This is my mic. I'm gonna make your band sound good." I am such a polygamist when it comes to microphones. <laughs> but if you had to really commit and you know just really spend your life with. That one special. I'm going to take an SM57. Are you serious? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's the one mic that can do anything, everything, all the time. It's the one mic that never disappoints. That's such um, a non-controversial take. I'm surprised you would say that. Yeah, because, I'm, you know, I mean, it, there's so many great microphones. Answer. 
It's a there's so many great microphones, and I, you know, I own so many Jay Z microphones. Yeah. Uh, the I love the Black Hole. The company yeah. even made made me one called Mark recently. Uh-huh. Uh I saw that. Um, uh, I love Erlen microphones, which are Swedish microphones. Um, you know, there's so many fantastic microphones that I have at East Side that I, I basically, be, it would be so hard for me to choose one that I'd probably take a 57. Yeah. I'm talking on a 57 I, right now. Yeah, and the, uh, you know what? If if I drop that 57 in the desert island, it will still work afterwards. And if I drop it in the water, it probably will still work. It's you so know? funny how like the <laughs> SM57 is really the mic that pr- I'm sure far and away is the mic that most people would say, and it's $125. <laughs> yeah, it's... It's a great microphone, and it will. You can treat them like absolute shit, and they will fucking deliver every time. Yeah, don't Fantastic. don't treat your mics badly. Okay, uh, so we'll we'll do. Um, we're at, we're at an hour, so we'll do one more. Uh, and well, all right. I actually have two questions. Sure. Uh, the first one is, you know, I, I haven't seen you in a while, but for years in New York, you more than anyone I know, you would spend the entire day in the recording studio, which. Um, can be really difficult. Can be can cause a lot of fatigue on one's ears, and then you would go straight to not just one gig, not just one concert, but often two or three shows in one night. So we're literally talking about like an eighteen-hour period of just nonstop listening. How do you protect your ears, and what would be your advice to people that devote that much time uh, to this, like taking in all this sound? Man, I miss those days. <laughs> In the quarantine, you're just like hit me in my weakest point. I would love yeah. to go see four concerts tonight, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I obviously protect my ears in two ways. One is I mix or record at low volumes in the studio. Uh, that's the way to last longer and to not create any long-term damage. Um, and when I go to concerts, I always, always, always have earplugs in. And I, you know, I have custom molded earplugs. Yeah. Um, and that's a must. I don't do it. I don't, I don't even take the, su- oftentimes I put them in to take the subway. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. It gets loud down there. Yeah. Every, everywhere where there's loud sound. If I go to a bar and there's people yelling and screaming music in the background, I will probably pop them in. Yeah. Uh, so I have them in all the time in loud places and then at the studio, unless I'm, I'm mixing a show, if mm-hmm. I'm mixing the concert, then I'm not putting them in. Going raw. Yeah. Well, you got to hear what you're mixing, you know. Yeah. Uh, you can't pretend. Um, and in the studio, like I said, I try to, I'm always recording at low volumes. Obviously, I turn it up at the beginning. Once I know it's it's good, I, I can turn it down. And when I mix, I very much record at lower yeah. volumes. I mean, mix at lower volumes. Yeah. All right, uh, and then so so my last question, um, and it's not so much a question, more more of a prompt. Um, like like many people, uh, I was really sad to see that uh, Hal Wilner had passed away. Um, oh man, Hal, I miss him a, so much. About a week ago, uh, and for those of you that don't know Hal, I think you'd be surprised, even if the name isn't familiar to you. Musically, he's been in your life for a very long time. Uh, he was a producer. He did a lot of tribute albums, uh, famously a, a Nino Rota album, a Kurt Vile album. Uh, he was the producer uh, on Saturday Night Live, the music producer for like 
40 years or something, you know, picking out the music for all the, the scenes. Uh, he produced night music with David Sanborn. Um, I think more than anyone, he really married all these musics and musicians together in a way that would seem to not make sense, um, but made an awful lot of sense. He produced records for Lou Reed, for 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 Marianne Faithful, for William Burroughs, and he was somebody that you worked with for for a number of years. I just wondering if you had anything you could say about about Hal, about working with Hal, about his his impact. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about Hal for hours. I worked with him for over ten years, a uh, little over ten years, ten, eleven, twelve. Um, he was, first of all, he was one of the sweetest people you've ever meet. Yeah. He was completely, uh, didn't have a mean bone in his body. Uh, always kind to everyone, would talk and give time to anyone that asked questions or wanted to talk about music or about some of the other things he loved, which is, you know, uh, black and wild, wild, black and white comedy, uh, Lauren Hardy he loved or puppets puppetry you know whatever tickled Hal's fantasy you could talk to him for hours about and even if he was late for a meeting he would keep talking to you uh, he was just a completely you know amazing mensch I would mm -hmm. say the definition of a mensch mm -hmm. um, that said musically he was a genius and it took me a, a, a while to figure it out. When I first started working with him, I would just see him, you know, I, were, I met him through Lou Reed. I would mm -hmm. be working with Lou and he'd be, Hal would be sitting in the corner uh, with his iPad and I didn't really know what he was doing to be uh, a called a producer. Um, <laughs> you know, I, well, because I didn't know all, I didn't know all the thing that was going on in the background. I just right. saw him sit there, you know. Right. When I started working closely with Hal, I figured out what he's all about and how he works. And, you know, then he became a mentor to me and an inspiration. And I kind of want to, I always say that, you know, you can't fill Hal's shoes, but you can try to walk in his. And I'm going to, you know, my, what, I've, what I do as a producer is I try to do the same thing Hal has done, which is to bring people together and create beautiful music. Mm -hmm. Um I miss him terribly. He's gone for a little over a week. Uh, the last four years we spent closely together because we did a, a fantastic tribute record uh, that included people like U2, Elton John, Foo Fighters, um, Nick Cave, just Jeez. amazing, yeah. amazing artists that is supposed to come out in a month, actually, sadly, uh, after his death. Um, and uh, I actually put up a tribute website to him called haltribute.com, H-A-L, H-A-L tribute.com, which if you don't know Hal, or even if you do, I urge you to go visit because basically what I'm doing is I'm collecting all the quotes that all his best friends, which are, you know, Elvis Costello, Nick Cave, Tom Waits, they're all writing beautiful tributes online and I'm collecting them all on one site for posterity. Uh, but also I've created a... a um, a discography page and in mm. doing so I've learned so much about Hal that I didn't know because I thought I kind of knew Hal's discography and when I started digging I mean I, it's got to be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of records it's hundreds but I yeah. didn't realize you know I thought it was 50 or something like that right. uh, and, and then when you start looking at the things he's done 
I mean, Nino Rota is one of the oldest thing. That record just turned 40 years old two, two years ago. And wow. Hal, which is amazing. Hal was only 20 or 21 when he made that, right? When wow. he produced that record. He, I believe it was one of the first records Bill Frizzell was ever recorded on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could be wrong about that. But anyway, it was one of the early, Bill had just moved to New York. And so it's very, you know, in a way, Hal contributed to bringing Bill into the limelight. Uh, it was just a, f- you know, it was just a fantastic person recording fantastic music. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm actually thinking of doing a tribute album for for him to honor Al's memory and mm-hmm. bring together all of his friends one last time to, you know, make great music. So it's something that's in the back of my head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I only met him a couple of times very briefly, but definitely yeah. seemed like a character. Super character. He's a character, and he was, like I said, generous and kind and genius in a way, in a completely different way than Zorn. You know, Zorn is a genius as well, uh, but, but and uh, and Hal doesn't have half or even a tenth of the skills that Zorn has when it comes to writing music. Sure. Uh, uh, or you know things like that. How skills were more uh, with in people. You know yeah. he was he was great at knowing what person would be would pair up greatly with another person on a certain song, and he had an encyclopedic knowledge of music that just mm-hmm. like is baffling. And it's like Zorn. They both shared that. They both have you know incredible knowledge of music. I often went to Hal's studio on Ninth Avenue in the 40s and his record collection was out of this world and you know he would have things like oh and he would pull out things like oh Keith Richards gave me this doll or Stockhausen gave me this little you know music box and things like that so he was just a unique person and honestly I think we've lost one of the greats and I think he was um, he's kind of unreplaceable I don't think there's anyone like him no, I don't uh, that does the things he does. Uh, so, you know. Yeah, I mean, the world definitely, whether people know it or not, like I said, you know, the world definitely owes him oh, uh, yeah. a lot of gratitude because he really, really ushered in a tremendous amount of music that I don't think people would have uh, heard otherwise. Yeah. And, you know, Hal is the... is. Controlled chaos. Chaos is a thing. Is an expression often used to describe Hal's productions. Mm-hmm. Um, and another way to describe Hal is is just to think of him as a curator of. Oh, you said curator. Curator. Yeah. Of what's of what's going on, and of what can be paired. He he just loved contrast, mm-hmm. and and creating. You know, I mean, Zorn loves contrast too. Uh, it's it, they're they're two different kinds of geniuses, but they're both geniuses. And I, I mean, I, I think there's you know, so night music, which if you guys don't know night music, I mean, you've got yeah. you've got all the time in the world, go on YouTube and experience you know some really special stuff from the '80s and '90s. There's a, a performance of the Residents with Kronos Quartet and Conway Twitty playing together. Mm. It's yeah, like, that's it. <laughs> Like no, a, he he would bring together the most disparate people, you know, the yeah. mo- the most different sounding or different looking people, and it would always work, you know. Yeah, and he had that gift. He knew what would work, or or he took risks. Who knows, you know? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, uh, but he loved taking risks. He loved being on that edge of 
what could possibly become a disaster but then turn into beautiful music you know yeah and night music is is was his platform to bring artists uh out to the world uh and he he used it as a platform to help up-and-coming artists and um one thing people don't know is that hal had actually been greenlit just like six months ago for a new tv show are you serious Yes, and it's so sad that this will never happen because uh, I don't know exactly the details of what TV show it would have been, but I just know that Hal would have made the best of it and, and would have used but it to... But pr presumably it was something about presenting live music? I, I mean, there's, you know, Hal is all, is all about music, so it yeah. couldn't have been a TV show that without music. Obviously, there, there was going to be music in it. I know, I don't know any of the details, and it yeah. doesn't matter at this point because oh, it's not going to happen. But yeah, I just would have loved to see what Hal comes yeah. up with. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, you know, he also had a radio show for yep. 87 uh, episodes with Lou Reed. They would co-host this radio show on, on Sirius XM, I think, called uh, The New York Shuffle, in which mm -hmm. they would start with an Ornette column and tune, and then they would go into a million directions musically and just talk about music for oh, two hours, man. which was, was amazing. Yeah. He was just like an all-around multifaceted, uh, you know, complete curator of, of art and music, and he will be sorely missed, and I will maybe conclude this by with a sentence that I've learned from Hal, which Hal would say every time somebody, one, the greats would die. You know, he was he was very close friends with Dr. John and mm -hmm. some of the other people that have passed. And what Hal would say when once they were gone is like, now it's up to us. Huh. And that's, I took that to heart, you know. Yeah. It's like, now Hal is gone. I'm very saddened about it, but it's up to us now to make sure that great music continues to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, all right, buddy. This has been good. I think we did good today. And, uh, Thank you for having me. Thank yeah, you man. for sending nice in all the to, questions to, to the connect guys with you. that did. I got a, I got some stuff I need to send you to mix. That's what this reminded me of. Okay. All right, I'm going to shut this off. Thank you, you're, Mark. You're not going to mix it yourself? No, I learned today that that's not a good idea. <laughs> well, right. I'm glad somebody's listening. Keep it recording for a second. All right. That was me and sound engineer producer Mark Urselli. I hope that you guys enjoyed that. I uh, hope that was interesting for you. If you want to find out more about Mark, go to markerselli.com. The man knows a lot about recording music and how to make it sound right. Check him out. On the subject of recording music, send in your questions for next week with me and Randall Dunn. Questions about anything. Music technology, Buddhism, Chogim Trungpa, uh, travels through the Middle East. The guy's done a lot of stuff. So do that. And, uh, yeah, until then, I guess uh, stay inside, watch movies, read books, and, uh, and that's it. All right, later. <laughs>